destino para ti lo que viniera de ti tu pueblo Welcome to the Inside the Journey podcast. This is episode number 80 for Sunday, March 1st, 2015. I'm Nelson DeWitt. And I'm John Younger. Our guest today is Aviva Chomsky, who is a professor of Latin American history at Salem State. We sat down with Professor Chomsky to talk about the recent U.S. border crisis that took place in the summer of 2014. She helped us make sense of the border crisis by providing a much richer and deeper look into the historical context of Central America and what drove so many families to leave Central America for the United States. Typically on the show, we produce 20 to 30 minute interviews. However, our conversation with Professor Chomsky ran longer than usual. So instead of breaking the podcast up into two parts, as we normally do, we decided to provide this condensed version alongside an extended version of the interview. The full interview can be found on the webpage for this episode or as a separate download in our podcast feed. We highly recommend that you give it a listen because it's filled with a lot of wonderful detail that could not be included in this condensed version. And with that, let's get to the interview. Today we have a very special guest, Aviva Chomsky, or Professor Chomsky, who works at the Salem State University as a professor of uh, Latin American history. So I hope I got that right. Uh, Avi, welcome to the show. Thanks a lot for inviting me to be on. And yes, you got it right. <laughs> awesome. Uh, so we're going to be talking today with Avi more about Central America and some of the broader issues surrounding the uh, quote-unquote border crisis. And we'll get into that in a little bit. But I thought we would start with a, just a, a brief introduction about yourself and how you got into the field of Latin American history. Sure. Um, and Central America is central to how I got interested in Latin American history. So I went to college and graduate school at the University of California, Berkeley. And I was there during the end of the 1970s and beginning of the 1980s, actually all of the 1980s. Uh, I finished grad, got my PhD in 1990. This was a period in American history where Central America had kind of jumped onto the international stage and into the foreign policy arena. And I was in Berkeley, which of course, as you know, has a long history of political activism. But in particular at that time, Berkeley was also, or I should say the San Francisco Bay Area, was probably after Los Angeles, the largest, the, the place that was receiving the largest numbers of refugees, especially from El Salvador and Guatemala. I had already finished my, well, I finished my BA in Spanish and Portuguese in 1982. So I was a fluent speaker of Spanish. I had spent some time living in Spain. And so I think both from the very immediate connection of working with refugees from Guatemala and El Salvador, and from the sort of larger political perspective of trying to figure out what is the United States doing and why, and why do we seem to be pouring so much money and resources and support into the wrong side here. Of course, that's not unique in U.S. history, but it was, it was the issue that sort of accompanied my coming of age, going to college, coming to political consciousness. So that's what got me involved. We wanted to focus a lot of our discussion today around immigration and specifically um, the quote-unquote immigration crisis at the, at the border that happened about a year ago with all the children appearing. Well, I'm a historian, 
And I became a historian while looking at what was happening in Central America in the 1980s. And as I started to become more involved, one of the first things that I realized is that you couldn't possibly understand what was going on in the 1980s without knowing what came before that, that led up to it. So in order to answer your question about what happened last summer, I think we have to go back at least to 1492. <laughs> I think I'll kind of jump back, jump back and forth okay. and present, um, trying to make sense of it all. One of the first things that you'll notice about what was happening last summer is young people, primarily from three countries of Central America, Guatemala, El Salvador, and Honduras, unaccompanied minors, that means young people under the age of 18, were crossing the border alone, the vast majority of them to reunite with family members who were already in the United States, and the vast majority of them fleeing what we could call violence and structural violence in their homelands. Usually when we say violence, we're talking about what everybody might, might recognize as violence that is forced recruitment into gangs or paramilitary forces, threats. But in addition to overt violence, it's also the very important issue of structural violence. And by structural violence, we mean violence where the, the actual perpetrator isn't a single individual in a single moment, but it's a social system set up like the World Bank, the International Monetary Fund, like the US government, like the governments of Central America that have created conditions that make it impossible for people to survive. A person pointing a gun at your face is actual violence, but structural violence is connected to things like poverty, like lack of opportunity. So watching one's children die because you can't find work that is going to support them, that's, that's what we call structural violence. So many of these youth were actually fleeing what is understood by the law and by the population in general as overt direct violence. But I would say that all of them pretty much are fleeing structural violence because of the way that structural violence is built into the societies of, of those three Central American countries. Uh, growing up as an American, I feel like I, you know, I haven't got a lot of exposure to Central American or Latin American history. And it's just not you know, so much of the focus of American history books is is uh, British, right? <laughs> and I, I learned in college that, that so much of what isn't written doesn't mean that it wasn't a big part of, of the picture and, in fact, influencing events everywhere. You know, just to sort of zero in on the role of the United States here, it's absolutely essential. So you see the United States invading Nicaragua in 1912 and I should say this is also in the context of uh, their invasions of the Dominican Republic and Haiti and Cuba and Puerto Rico. That is, it's not only Nicaragua, but at the beginning of the 20th century is when the U.S. starts to make ample use of its military. So if they don't like the government or the direction that some country is going, in the case of Honduras, they intervene to support one candidate over another in, in coups to overthrow one candidate and get another one in power. And I'm not talking about the recent Honduras coup, I'm talking about the 1910s here. In Nicaragua, they decided the whole place is such a mess, as they do in Puerto Rico, Cuba, the Dominican Republic, and Haiti, that they're going to take over completely. And they occupy Nicaragua from 1912 until 1933, um, with a brief hiatus in the late 1920s and set up a military government, set up a military, uh, the National Guard in Nicaragua, as they do in many of the other countries that they occupy. 
they basically remake the entire institutional structure of the country with collaborationists, with people who are beholden not to the population of their country because there's no democratic process, but rather to their U.S. sponsors. Um, when the U.S. finally withdraws from Nicaragua in the 1930s, it is to leave in place the head of the U.S.-created National Guard, Anastasio Somoza, and to establish what becomes known as the Somoza dynasty in Nicaragua as basically complete puppets of the United States. Now, in El Salvador and Guatemala, they don't need to install their puppets because they can work well enough with the governments that are in charge there. But in all of these countries, the political economic model is one of dictatorship to support the export economy. So whether the U.S. can do this by proxy or whether they have to do it directly, they're very deeply involved in all of these countries. So in the post-World War II period, one of the first real challenges to this sort of complete U.S. hegemony in Central America comes about in Guatemala with the overthrow of a dictator uh, who had friendly relations with the United States and the installation of a democratic system in 1944. The United States is perhaps a little too busy to do anything about it at the beginning, but over the course of the end of the 1940s and the beginning of the 1950s, in the context of the growing Cold War, and especially in the context of the United Fruit Company, the United States starts setting up and training a proxy army and essentially sponsors a, an invasion of Guatemala in 1954 to overthrow what's really the first democratically elected government in Guatemala's history, putting into place a military dictatorship. So now we have our military dictatorship in Nicaragua and our military dictatorship in, in Guatemala. Now, in all three of these countries, Guatemala, El Salvador, and Nicaragua, Starting in the 1960s and growing in the 1970s, there's popular opposition. And this popular opposition comes from a number of different sources. One of the sources is it comes from the Catholic Church, which has increasingly over the 1960s radicalized in Latin America. And it's radicalized as a result of the Second Vatican Congress, which tries to redefine the role of the church in the modern world. And the Latin American bishops take some of these ideas of, of Vatican II to an even greater extreme with the development of liberation theology. They say that the church should not be teaching people to accept injustice in this world because it's God's will. And the goal of the church is sort of redefined as that God's will is that we should achieve justice in this world. And this turns many sectors of the church into revolutionaries because not only do they see the extent to which injustice in this world is enforced by imperialism, by the export economy, by repressive government, but they also start to mobilize setting up Christian base communities, literacy campaigns with especially poor rural communities that becomes very threatening to the upper classes. And even become involved in revolutionary movements like the Sandinista revolutionary movement. So in these three countries, we see the sort of coming together of different political forces, including the Catholic Church and newly mobilized peasants and university students, intellectuals, becoming more and more 
critical of the political status quo and coming together to, to fight against it. I should say the political and economic status quo. In Nicaragua, the Sandinista revolutionary movement, they're victorious in 1979. The United States decides reluctantly that they can no longer use Somoza. He's not politically useful anymore. He's uh, created too much repression and resistance. They withdraw their support, and the Sandinistas are victorious, July 19, 1979. And the Sandinista victory gives a huge boost in morale to the revolutionary movements in Guatemala and El Salvador as well. However, the United States, after the Sandinista victory, decides quickly, and especially after Reagan's election, and here's where we get to my college years, that this revolution is far too dangerous to U.S political domination and corporate control in Central America and organizes, like they did in Guatemala in the 1950s, a proxy army of exiles who they train and they arm really heavily and they sponsor the Contra War to overthrow the democratically elected government, post-revolutionary government of Nicaragua, and they get more and more involved with extremely repressive governments in Guatemala and El Salvador that are carrying out scorched earth tactics and huge repressions against rural populations. And especially from Guatemala and El Salvador, an outflow of refugees to the United States. So I would say this, these events of the 1980s are the immediate historical context mm -hmm. for the Central American youth refugee crisis. The migrant crisis of the summer did not include children from Nicaragua. It was from Guatemala, El Salvador, and Honduras, three countries where the United States was essentially victorious in implementing its political economic system. And so it's really in the 1980s that we start to see a pattern of separate family separations. The end of the wars in Guatemala and El Salvador paradoxically did not lead to an end of the violence. In some ways, they have led to more violence, not the violence of war, but continuing structural violence and new sort of diffuse unofficial violence. Paramilitaries were formed in those countries during the war. The paramilitaries have continued to operate. They've been reformulated. There's been very little change in the economic structures that necessitated the violence. So refugees have continued to come and the more refugees that have come, the more family separations have become an issue. Many, many of the young people who crossed the border, who were crossing the border last summer, their parents were already in the United States. I'd like to jump in here and uh, offer a quote that is actually from you that might uh, tie this whole thing together. And it really stood out to me in the article that you wrote for Tom Dispatch. And it, it, uh, it goes, in other words, the present crisis stems in part from, our, from the way that our economy depends on separating parents from their children in order to exploit cheap labor. Yeah. and then our horror and dismay when they want to be reunited. And I think that really sums up what we've been talking about today. And, and I'd love for you to expand a little bit more on, on what your thinking there was. Well, one other piece of this puzzle, so I've been talking about the way the U.S. economy depends on the exploitation of Central American labor in Central America. Um, and that's definitely a part of it. And another 
way that this happened in in the late 20th century in the post-war period has been the export of the maquiladora economy to Central America. The creation of export processing zones where the United States actually exports the labor-intensive parts of production. So it's been a sort of a reformulation of the global economy with deindustrialization in the United States. But at the same time, there's this the same neoliberal restructuring of the global economy that has taken US manufacturing out of the United States and into central places like Central America has also created a demand for undocumented labor in the United States. The spread of agriculture and the move of African Americans out of agriculture over the course of the 20th century has created new markets for Central American and Mexican agricultural workers in the South and in the East of the United States, out of the Southwest and the West. I mean, still in those places, but in addition, in the Southeast and even in the Northeast, Mexican and Central American migrant workers are crucial to agriculture. And in new service economy areas, like in landscaping, elder care, the shifts in the demographics of the United States with the growth of a super rich that can afford a lot of new services and with the increasing pressures on the working middle classes and poor that can no longer spare labor to do in the household things that they had done before. So an increasing reliance on things like fast foods and processed foods, elder care, child care, all of those changes which are related to the deindustrialization that took U.S. manufacturing to Central America are also drawing Central Americans along with Mexicans into this new sub-economy in the United States. It's been interesting for me to go to El Salvador and learn about the history to the extent that I have and see how unaware we are of it. I, I feel like there's a lot of parallels to what African Americans faced throughout history, especially in that as Americans, we tend not to have language for or view um, Latin Americans in a, in a in human terms often, <laughs> and um, we've made them illegal immigrants. And you've done a lot of work in talking about this mig- you know, migrant population that's here in this country and and how they've been disenfranchised and disparaged. I, I just wondered if you could talk a little bit about immigration and the current crisis and how our, our laws have affected the way we we even perceive it. I mean, I think the, if you look historically. Clearly, there are differences between the African-American experience and the Mexican-Central American experience. Mm -hmm. Um, And there are some points of comparison that I think are very revealing. That is, the United States has always relied on a labor market, a dual labor market, a labor market in which some workers have rights, but certain employers also have access to workers who are legally deprived of rights. The country has always, from its very first days, proclaimed some kind of adherence to ideas about equal rights. It's also been very clear, both formally and informally, that equal rights for some, not for Mm -hmm. all. Equal rights never has meant for all. And as it has become more and more difficult to exclude people solely on the basis of race, which was the main way of excluding people from rights up through 1965 or so, really, new forms of legal forms of exclusion came into prominence. And both of them had to do with criminalization. 
with respect to both African-Americans and Mexican-Americans. And I say Mexican-Americans here as a sort of a shorthand that also includes Central American undocumented migrants. And this criminalization happened through the direct use of the criminal justice system in the case of African-Americans and more through the immigration system in the case of Mexican and Central Americans, that is through the creation and proliferation of undocumentedness. Issue of undocumentedness really started to gain prominence as a way of discriminating against people in the late 20th century as it became less and less possible to legally discriminate and exclude on the basis of Mexicanness, which had previously been considered a racial category. So, um, but, but in the early 20th century, it was more or less just acceptable <laughs> that that Mexicans would have a second set of rights, and now there is a legal justification for it. Is that the exactly. okay? Exactly. And because they have been excluded legally excluded from this thing called documents, that then becomes a justification for legally excluding them from so many other things, from turning them, in fact, into criminals. And if you look closely at the law, most immigrants who are considered felons are not felons because they did something that you or I might consider a crime, like maybe murder or rape or child abuse or, you know, acts of violence. No. They're felons because they committed immigration crimes. That is, they crossed the border without permission more than once, for example. So this attempt to criminalize and felonize people for crimes that are made up especially for them is a crime that, that uh, you or I could not commit because we have papers. It's kind of tautological. <laughs> Um, you can only commit it if you don't have papers, but who has papers and who doesn't have papers? Well, so the criminalization, the justification of mistreatment through criminalization, I think, is absolutely characteristic of, of the late 20th century and into the 21st century. I really got a lot out of your article in the, in the Tom Dispatch where you talked about the Lynn. I'm from Massachusetts also. Nelson and I both grew up in Newton. And uh, where you talked about the Lynn mayor and Deval Patrick and how the debate was really confined to two people with moral rights, right? Um, and try and take the moral high ground where the mayor from Lynn was talking a lot about how her poor community was being imposed on and overwhelmed by essentially a flood of refugees, whether she expressed it in native terms or not. And Deval Patrick was talking about putting a Band-Aid on trying to help Latin American refugees. And, and so, you know, one could be for the poor white guy and the other could be for the poor brown guy <laughs> but but it was not really grappling with the greater historical trends and broader solutions and and so I wanted to, to thank you for for sharing some of those with us today and and giving a little deeper understanding as, as a history major myself with a lot of interest in El Salvador I've, I've found it hard to find a lot of good resources and and you speak to it really well thank, thank you mm-hmm yeah, and I just wanted to say thank you as well. This is very interesting uh, for, for me. I, I've said many times on the show that uh, I grew up primarily as an American living in Boston, so part of this journey for me was learning about my own culture, my own history. So conversations like this really helped me understand a little bit deeper uh, where I come from and why and how I ended up here in the States. So thank you for coming on today.
Well, thank you so much. It's great to have such an appreciative audience, too. Yeah. <laughs>